Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Father, we praise you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your word. Father, we pray that you would understand, help us to understand what it means to be justified uh, through faith in Christ. Father, what implications, what realities we receive from being uh, reconciled to you, Lord, through faith. We thank you for our relationship with you. We thank you for your great love for us. Father, we pray that you would help us uh, as we work our way through this section of the Bible. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So chapter 5 is is a major sort of turning point within Romans. I believe this is sort of the heart that Paul has been sort of working out. He he laid a foundation in the first four chapters, and, and now he gets to the part that he really wants to share with us. Uh, looking back, we know that the first seven verses, Paul introduces himself to the believers who are at Rome. He had never met them. He desired to go visit them, to meet with them. Uh, he've, he's heard many good things about how they were living out their faith. The word had spread throughout the known world. And Paul's like, I got to get there. I got to meet these people. I want to encourage them. I, I want to be encouraged by them. And so he lets them know that, that he longs to see them. He, he says that he wants to see them. He sort of greased the skeds of, of this request. It's going to come later in the letter that he, he wants to get some fruit from them, which means he wants money so that they would fund his, the rest of his journey to Spain because he wanted to get the gospel to the world that hadn't received the gospel. He begins with saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation. Um, for those who believe, he says, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. He lays the framework in chapters one, two, and three, basically showing that all people have sinned, that we were born of sin and we have sinned on our own accord and our sin makes us guilty of death, that the wrath of God is due us. And apart from his intervention, we're, we are helpless. 
And by the time we get to the end of chapter three, you are in a state, if you're honest with yourself about who you are and who God is, that you can feel quite helpless. And then he begins to share about the gospel, that Christ came and that he paid the price. And and as he shares the gospel, he hears some resistance, namely from his Jewish brothers that said, well, what about the law? What about our separation? What about all of these things? And so in chapter four, Paul builds the case to show from Genesis that Abraham, their forefather, that it, it was never by works. The law only brought about God's wrath. It only exposed our sin. And he points to the story when the promise was given to Abraham. And he shows that it was by faith. It was that Abraham believed what God said. And it was because of his belief, his faith, that he was declared righteous. It wasn't about a system of works. Paul then continued with Abraham to show that it was not. It was some 15 years later after he was declared righteous by God. That the whole circumcision rite started happening and and long before the law so that Abraham was the father of both the Jews and the Gentiles because God is one. And we see in Paul's writing in Galatians that through faith in Christ that that we who are not a part of the circumcision, meaning Jewish, we are children of Abraham through faith. It's faith that links us all, whether you're Jew or Gentile into god's family at the end of chapter 4 verse 22 he says therefore it referring to faith was also credited to him that's abraham as righteousness now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him so he says listen when abraham was given a promise by God. God gave him a promise that was quite frankly ridiculous. He was nearing 100 years old. His wife was barren. He said, you two are going to have a son. And Abraham believed. And Paul says it wasn't just written for his benefit. It was written for our benefit because like Abraham, we have to believe in God. And he says, When we see Abraham's example and how faithful God is, it gives us confidence. And so when we hear about the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we can believe like Abraham. For he says in verse 24, who believe in him, the father who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Justification is a legal term. The opposite of justification is condemnation. And so we stand justified, not saying that we've never sinned or we will never sin. But even though we have sinned and we will continue to struggle with sin, God says, because you believed upon my son, you're justified before me. And so from this, we get to chapter five, verse one, we see the therefore. The therefore is probably because of the immediate three verses, but likely for all of the chapters that he's mentioned. We were separated from God. We were condemned by our sin nature. The wrath of God was coming towards us. Paul shifts in how he speaks. Some would probably say more uh, extreme than I see in the text. 
But in the chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul's very much, they have fallen. They, they are, there is no one. It's very sort of, he's not talking about the group, although they would be included, but he's talking about they, they, they. And suddenly in chapter 5, it gets very personal where he says we. He's talking in not him and the apostles. He's talking to those that he's writing to in himself that we who have trusted in Christ. Suddenly there's, a, there's great truth that affects how we live today. The first thing he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a big thing. It says we don't have the, it doesn't say we have the peace of God, that, that God's peace suddenly transcends our hearts and we feel kind of, we're not worried anymore. It says literally that we have peace with God, that that wrath that was due us, as it was poured, upon, poured out upon Christ, Christ was our propitiation, meaning that the wrath of God was satisfied. And as we trust in Christ, we no longer are enemies of God, that we're at peace with him through Christ. And he says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. This phrase caught my attention. It comes in verse 1 and it comes in verse 11. The Lord Jesus Christ. And as I've been studying Romans, I, has Paul used this, this term? Has he, has he talked about Jesus in this way with these three words? Lord Jesus Christ. Thankfully for Bible software, I'm able to do a quick search. I didn't have to reread and look, make tick marks and it come up. But quickly, I scanned the Romans. And this phrase is actually pretty rare in Romans. He uses it at the introduction in verse 7 of chapter 1. And he uses it again in chapter 16, verse 24. In between there, he uses it once here and in verse 11. And then he uses it again in chapter 13, verse 14. If you'll go with me over to chapter 13, verse 14, just so we can read it. So we go a few pages towards the back of the book. This term, which I thought would be used so commonly by Paul, is sort of rare. And so when we come to chapter 13, verse 14, Paul tells the readers, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. And so we see here that when he uses the phrase Lord Jesus Christ, we start seeing this element of, no, Christ paid for your sins. He's made way for you to have relationship with God. Submit yourselves to he's your Lord. Lean on him. Don't let your flesh get the best of you. Then as we turn the page and we go over to chapter 15, verse 6, he uses it again. Now he starts talking about relationships. Going up to verse 5 of chapter 15. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. So that with one accord you may with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on talking about unity within the church. And so sort of as this phrase is used. In Romans chapter 13 and 15, and then again down in verse 30, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. 
So it's this idea of drawing close to him that not only is he just Jesus, the Messiah, that there's a personal aspect to it, that he's your Lord. And so coming back to verse chapter five, I'm sorry, I might have, you know, to me, I'm still working out these thoughts. It, this phrase jumped out at me. Some of you might find that interesting. Everybody's like, okay, let's go on, Gunner. Let's move on to the next thing. But this whole past tense, we've been justified by faith. Paul, as he enters in this, he wants you to go back. When was that time that you wrestled with God, that God brought you to your knees or wherever you were, that you finally surrendered and you say, know what? I believe. I believe I give my life to you. When I read these first few verses, I stand here as a pastor now, but I, but I go back, you know, 15 years to 96 when I was really, my, my life was going a bad direction. And my dear friend, JR, that started, he found Jesus and then he wouldn't shut up about it and he wouldn't stop nagging me about it. Like, would you go to church? Would you go to church? Would you go to church? Finally, the only reason I went to church is because I made a deal. That he would promise never to ask me to go to church again if I just went once. And so I went. And I started going. And I started liking it. It was, there was something different about the people. And then that other SEAL buddy of mine who then approached me that one night and said, Hey, Gunner, how's your relationship with Jesus? I knew the right answer. I knew I was supposed to say, we're tight. We're good. But that night going home just for weeks, relationship with Jesus, what did he mean? What did he mean? I thought I was just supposed to go to church. Isn't going to church enough? But this idea of relationship to where somewhere in that window, I finally got it. And I said, Lord, I believe I trust in you. And I don't know when my moment actually was. I'm looking forward to getting to heaven to figure out exactly when I became a Christian. It could be when I was a little kid or it could have been like more when I was in 20s. Depends on who you ask. My wife thinks it was later in life. So I'm, I'm just looking forward to that. But at that moment when I believed, when I reached out and said, Lord, I believe that Jesus died for me. The scripture says at that moment, the spirit indwelt my heart, that I was sealed by the spirit, that I was moved from the body of Adam and sin transferred into Christ, the body of Christ, that there was life there. Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, that moment you believed, if you believe in Christ, you've been justified, declared righteous. Not that you are righteous, but that you've been declared righteous. He says, we have peace with God. The wrath that was due us is no longer coming. We're safe. We have peace with him through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also, verse 2, we have obtained our introduction by faith. This this idea, this introduction in the New American Standard, it's literally access. The picture of entering into a town, that there'd be a gate, that there was a way in. That through Christ, we've obtained this access. Think of like backstage passes that you're allowed to go where most people aren't allowed to go. By faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in the hope of glory of God. When I was about 12 years old, my dad's business partner, Will, was his name. He somehow had a relationship with the San Diego Chargers. And he asked if I would be interested in going down to their training facility. 
I was this, you know, 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old kid. I don't know exactly know how old I was. And it was Jack Murphy Stadium in the back of the parking lot. There was the training facility. They've moved it now on the freeway. And I just remember walking in there. Like, first, it's like, okay, we're in the parking lot. We walk through, and it's like, man, are we actually going to be able to get through? Will's like, hey, Will, how are you doing? Come on back. So I walk on back, and there was, like, Dan Fouts, the man. Char- I mean, Chargers glory days. He'd taken off his pads. He's in his T-shirt. He's carrying his helmet. He had a football. He said, he's like, hey, well, how's it going, kid? What's your name? I told my name. He's like, he's playing catch with me. Like, he, he probably threw it a couple of times. And I was just like, I can't believe I'm in here. I can't believe I'm in here. And they're like, yeah, we're just wrapping up here. We're going to go into the gym. Come on with us. So I'm running with all of these guys that were like giants. I think literally they were giants. They were huge. And so we ran into the weight room. And I remember just watching these guys. Like I hadn't done a pull-up in my life at that point. If I'd only known what was coming my way. These guys were like doing pull-ups with like weights strapped to their waist. Like no problem. I'm like this is just amazing. Overwhelmed. It had nothing to do with what I'd done. It was that I had this connection with Will that he got me in. And this is sort of the picture. That, that, that we've been... Granted access, Grace and I have been reading, well, we read through the kids' Pilgrim Progress. Now we've been listening to it on tape over and over again. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, get the kids' version to help you through it because it's like in the old English or get the tapes. But you get the story of Pilgrim, this Christian. He's trying to make his way to the celestial city and he finally gets to the celestial city and people have been trying to get in the wrong way, but you have to go through the gate. And because he knew Christ, he could go through this gate It's this beautiful picture of of entering in this access we have. How do we have this access? By works? By being a good person? No, it says by faith. And then as you enter through the gates into this grace in which we stand. I don't know about you, but I, I think of grace as something that's given to me. Because that's our simple definition of it. It's getting something that you don't deserve. Mercy's... Not getting something which you deserve. So like if you're guilty, it's not getting the spanking which you deserve. Grace is not only not getting the spanking, but then getting an ice cream cone. (laughs) But here, this is talking about something you stand in. This This is something different than the term grace that I understand. I've been to a lot of countries around the world. Pretty much for every country, I can tell you like, oh, I love this one thing. If you go to this place, get this one thing. And I was talking about somewhere. And Grace is like, well, is there anything you like about Mongolia? And I'm like scratching my head. Like, well, I liked it when Josh and Heidi were there. Like they were there. That was nice. But she's like, what about food? And I'm kind of like scrolling. I'm like, Stugeon, no. Stugeon, where they take hoofs of all animals, throw them in a grinder with chunks of hair and whatever else. And it's like this look, like when you take out of the canned ham out of the can, that gelatin looking stuff. (laughs) 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 Only for the love of Christ did I eat that. That was not on my good list. (laughs) Then there's Eric, which is, a mare, which is a female horse, that when she's nursing her baby, she produces milk. 
Eric is fermented mare's milk. So they milk the horse milk. Then they let it sit in the sun for who knows how long till it's horribly bad. It's fermented, which means it's like turning to alcohol now. They say, here, drink this. I I held it in. And so that's not on my, like, that's a great food. And then after that, I got deathly ill. Like, I literally, I mean, you don't really bond with the family until you are, like, sick, explosive out of every which way. You bond with the family when there's one bathroom in the house. That's where you really build relationships. So I was trying to figure out, I'm like, please, I don't want to get medically evacuated from Mongolia. Like, because everybody warned me, don't go to China. You want to get to Thailand. I'm like, I don't want to do this. I just want to go home. But then the one thing I was thankful for is when I got sick, it got me out of going to the countryside. And when we went to the countryside, it was harvesting time. So they were going to castrate all the animals. And in order to stay nice with the people of Mongolia, it's their tradition that when you castrate the animals, you don't just throw those parts away. You consume them. And so I, I was so thankful I got sick because I got out of that meal. And so flying home from Mongolia, I've never had this feeling when I was standing there at the, at the checkpoint with my passport. Yes, I was gone for 17 long days. Please let me back in the country. Now, what'd you do over there? It was just, just friends, nothing. Just can I come back in? Finally, finally they let me in. As I got through the gate before I got to the luggage carrier, I literally (laughs) kissed the ground. And I'm not being funny. A lot of times I'll make stories up just to be funny. I literally, in the San Francisco airport, beyond customs, waiting for my... Though I hadn't gone through customs, I just like gave the ground a big hug. I'm standing in this glorious country that I call home. I'm so glad to be back. I remember looking at Rich. I'm like, as soon as we get here, we need to go get a burger and some French fries before our next flight. He's like, it's like 7 a.m. I'm like, I don't care. We got to get a burger and fries. <laughs> this idea of we have access into this grace in which we stand. Christians, we know that we're saved by grace. But I can't tell you how many times I've taken this life of being saved by grace and turning it into a system of works. Not only are you saved by grace, we live in grace. Don't fall into the system of works. And so here we stand in grace. Paul says we exult in hope of the glory of God. Now, I I need a pause. If you're reading out of the translation I'm reading from, you'll see exult. E-X-U-L-T. It's not the same word as exalt. E-X-A-L-T. Vastly different meanings. To exalt something, there's an object. So I exalt God. I lift him up. I praise him. I give adoration to him. Exalt is an entirely different word. If you're using the NIV, I believe they got it. Rejoicing. In this section, they three times they use, instead of exalt, they say rejoice. Now, the definition of exalt is to rejoice greatly. Or to be jubilant or triumphant. It is always intransitive. Meaning it does not have a direct object. I.e. you cannot exalt someone or something. You just exalt. It's a, it's a feeling. An emotion within. Which changes how you see this passage. And so the first thing after talking about this. 
this introduction that we stand in this grace, that we've been justified through faith in the past, if you are a believer in Christ. And those who have been justified, who stand at peace with God, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul's already talked about the glory of God, remember, back in chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. But now, standing justified, we exult, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, the expectation we're no longer condemned. We're justified. The glory of God no longer is out of our reach, but we will stand in it. It's beautiful. And he says, but it's not just the good things. Verse 3, and not only this, but we also exult, rejoice in our tribulations. Huh? How does that work? This word, tribulations, it, it literally means pressure. Like a pressure like weighing down on you. Being an adult with responsibilities. Oh, the kids are all gone in this service. But last service, I told the kids, I'm like, kids, enjoy life right now. Take those naps. (laughs) You have no pressure. You live in this little bubble. Food just shows up. Your bed's there. No pressure of like life and responsibilities. I was told the same thing when I was a kid. I'm like, I just want to be an adult. Now I just want to nap. I just want to like frolic during summertime, just like dreading when school would start. Like just no, nothing, no responsibility. But we who are adults, who are mature, who are living life, we face tribulations. We face pressure. We worry with every passing day, you, we recognize that we're getting older, that, that life seems to, to speed up the older you get. But Paul says we rejoice in our tribulations and it doesn't make sense. Because when there's pressure, we want to get out from under it. But Paul says we rejoice in tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Literally that word from the Greek, I won't quote it to you because I'll say it wrong. But it literally means to stand under something. That as the pressure is coming down, you stand under it. And how do you do this? Well, to the one who has this relationship with Christ, who has been justified, our pressure is no longer viewed as Darwin's rules of just life falling apart. It's that we serve The Lord Jesus Christ, who is sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, he cares for us intimately. And so when stuff happens in my life, when the pressures come, I know that God is bigger than all of that. And my greatest problem is like nothing. He can just say, let it be done with. But he doesn't. So therefore, whatever pressure or strain I'm standing up under, I recognize that God is using this in my life to conform me into the image of his son. So no longer do tribulations seem like bad things. They're good things because God's chipping away at me. And so that gives me the hope to bear up under this strain. And then he continues, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character. 
this idea of, of being tested as if a, a silver or gold, as it's going through the, fine, the fire, that it's being refined of its impurities. It could also talk about athletes uh, training and preparing for their great events, for the military being trained and prepared that they've been through combat, that they've been through, tested, that they've been tried. Whenever Anna and I, it was about a year and a half ago or so, we went to Spain. And one of the places on this trip that I really wanted to go see that she's talked about from her childhood is in Andalusia, which is the, the southern region of Spain, best region of all of Spain, in our humble opinion. That's for my wife. If you go inland a little bit, there's a town called Jerez. And in Jerez, they produce the Andalusian, Andalusian horses that are... That are the beautiful horses that were basically the grandfathers of the what the horses that the ones in Switzerland the what are, what Lipizzans yeah those are the, the JV guys the, but the Andalusian horses are like just amazing animals and so we go to this horse show and we're sitting there it's kind of hot we're just kind of waiting and all of a sudden they shut all of the blinds so it gets dark in there the lights come on and it was just silent and this man comes galloping into the stadium on this beautiful horse spins around backs it up i'm getting goosebumps tears start flowing from my eyes i can't hold my composure together i'm overwhelmed with the greatness then anna looks at me and she's like are you crying (laughs) are you kidding me i'm like anna this guy, his great-great-grandfather bred these horses. He taught his great-grandfather, and his grandfather taught his grandfather. His grandfather taught his dad, and he's been preparing for this moment since he was like two years old. He's been waking up at 3 a.m., training all day long. This is excellence at its highest level. We're just watching the show. This is character it's amazing when i watch the olympics i same thing because we watch it it's like oh michael phelps swam 136 seconds that wasn't really that big of a deal it's 36 seconds over before it even started it's like do you guys know how many years he's been training how many hours and hardships and wanting to quit and all of this stuff and we watch it As a SEAL instructor, one of my favorite things was working Hell Week. Over the course of the four years working a number of Hell Weeks, the the five and a half days, a total of four hours sleep combined for the whole week. I would see students. I'd have three, four weeks with them. There were guys, oh, this guy's like, he's like, was a world-class wrestler. He's going to smoke through this program, no problem. And he quits. Then I see little scrawny guys. That's why it was me. Like, oh, this guy's going to quit, like, He's going to quit before Hell Week even starts. And then all of a sudden, they rise up in the midst of all of the pressure. And you watch the, the, the class sort of fall away and the number goes down to where sometimes it's down to like 20 guys. Which started with like 200. And at the end of Hell Week, that Friday afternoon, they'll bring like an Admiral Seal or some high-ranking guy. They'll bring up the flag and these guys are just torn up. They stink they're, they, well, they stink and they smell is what I was going to say, but I guess that's the same. It's bad. I, I, I've never smelt that smell anywhere else. <laughs> not even Mongolia. No, not even Mongolia. You, 
You shake their hands, but you have to go disinfect it so you don't get sick. But when they secure from hell week, every instructor goes through and shakes him down and says, you did a great job and I'm proud of you. And it's like, welcome to the brotherhood. But those are moments that get me choked up. Because we see the fruit of standing under pressure. And this is the character that Paul's talking about. Proven character. And proven character hope. He circled. That's where we started, right? We exult in hope of the glory of God. And so if we work this system backwards, for those who have trusted in Christ, we have hope by the character that we see in our own lives that came through standing under this pressure, which is tribulations. There were times early in my Christian life, if I go back to 1996, is really where everything started. God started really working on me in 96. I mean, he probably, that's where I started. I woke up to his working on me. He'd been working on me for a long time. But in 95, 96, and I finally accepted Christ, and I still had like a bunch of just, I wasn't like your poster child for Christianity at, by any stretch of the means. There were times by the time like 99, 98, 3, 4, I'm going, am I even a Christian? I, I can't, I want what the Bible says, but I'm a big fat failure. Everything I want to do, I fail grossly. But now looking back, my failures, these like fallen like hard. I see that the spirit was moving and convicting me. That the things I was doing, I was feeling horrible. And that was actually a good, a good thing. I have this friend who gave his life to the Lord. He says, oh, I thought I was going to have a mountaintop experience. Like, you know, at the beach and I'd cry and I'd like, you know, dove would come down and descend on me from heaven and i'd hear you are my child and i'd get the warm and fuzzies and i like no that never happened to me i know it happened to jesus but nobody else that i'm aware of and i'm like but sometimes i'm like you have been asking about this whole ephesians 5 4 thing sometimes the work of the spirit in our life is painful i'd say most times probably He's been texting me. He's like, oh, I've been reading through Ephesians, but man, I can't get through this Ephesians 5, 4. Now, those of you who are like me, God's worked on you in this one. It says no coarse jesting. No, like, watch your sense of humor, your sarcasm. I'm like, man, that's evidence of God working in you. And so now when I look back to 96 to where I am now, I am not the same guy that I was then. You give me a situation today from back then, I'll respond totally different. And I believe that God, like, through my trials and my standing under pressure and seeking the Lord, God's adjusted my character. And there's hope in that because he is working in my life. It's evidence that God is within me, which is where he goes. Verse 4, in perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. When was the Holy Spirit given to us? If you were to go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, we're told that after hearing the gospel, which is that Jesus died for your sins, he was buried on the third day he rose. So after hearing the gospel, at some point you believed. 
And we're told that when you believe, you're sealed by the Spirit. You're indwelt with the Spirit. And you might be a brand new Christian or you might not have believed yet. But when you do believe and you receive the Spirit, you'll notice change. It might take you like six years like me. But it's kind of the Christian life is kind of like the stock market. There's ups and downs. But if you look over the last hundred years, the stock market's pretty much gone up. There's been a whole lot of big, bad drops and falls. And But if you have the Spirit of God within you, he's going to do a work. And as you see the work being done over the course of many years, there's hope there. I'm not who I am today because I pulled myself up by the bootstraps and I said, Gunnar, we're just going to hunker down and you're going to be a good man and you're going you're gonna to start going to church. No, I was on my face. I humbled myself before the Lord. And then God has been so gracious. Paul says that the, that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We, we'll talk more about the Holy Spirit in chapter 8. But if I ever, because sometimes it happens on accident and I kick myself internally, but I authorize you guys, if I ever refer to the Holy Spirit as an it, you can throw a tennis ball at me or you know, throw something at me. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It's a he. He is a person of the, of the Godhead. But the Holy Spirit that he has been poured out, his love has been poured out within our hearts. Verse 6, for while we were still helpless... Paul keeps circling back to the gospel. He wants us to get it. For while we were still helpless, helpless without hope, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He said when he went to the cross, every single person that he died for was the ungodly, sinful humanity, which all of us are. And he pauses here. He's going to come back to this in verse 8. But in verse 7, he says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man. So, so you take a good person that's upstanding. Most people, very few would say, to defend that person, and I'll give my life. I would sacrifice my life for this person. He goes on to say, though perhaps for the good man, Someone would even dare to die. So he kind of makes a case. Okay, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were enemies with God, Jesus died for us. But he says, you know what? For a good man, for a righteous man, there may be some who died. Memorial Day is coming up. And Memorial Day is a change for me on June of 2003. When my best friend Tommy Retzer was killed in combat in Afghanistan. He was with SEAL Team 6. And he was shot in the head and he died. And so from that moment, the national anthem has changed for me. Memorial Day has changed for me. And so now I go to Rosecrans. And unfortunately, my list of buddies that are buried there is grown. Like I got to like, it's like a week out. I have to start going through the checklist to make sure that I go and visit all of the, to take my kids to show them all these spots. And one guy that I'm going to go to is Mike Monsoor. He's become a spam email that people circulate. <laughs> but he was a student that I put through training, a student that I said, oh, you're never going to mount to anything. You're not going to make it to this program. Quit now so you can get good orders. You know, like all of the lines we throw out. Well, he made it through training. 
Then he went to SEAL Team 3, my, my command, and on an RNS, a reconnaissance and surveillance operation with a number of guys, a small team. They were up in a building in Iraq, and a hand grenade came through the window. It hit him in the chest, and then it bounced to the ground, and immediately he dove to the ground, and he was killed. But he saved the lives of the other men that were in that room. And when that happened, I was like, I can't believe, I can't believe this kid that I put through training would, would sacrifice him, would demonstrate this sort of love to save his brothers. Those men that were in the room, some of my very dear friends, it affects them to this day that they live their lives honoring this man who they recognize that every day they have was a gift because of this great love that Mike Monsour gave. He was eventually awarded the Medal of Honor. And to me, it was suddenly in his actions, what Christ did, the picture for me came to life so much more so. Because verse nine, much more than, I'm sorry, verse eight. So, so Mike Monster, a great guy, he, he gave his life for these three men who he loved. And that display of love is overwhelming, but let's look at it in contrast what Christ did. Verse 8, but God, but God demonstrates his own love towards us. This is important. God loves us. God didn't give us the law so that we would earn our way. He gave us the law to show us that we need him, that we need the Messiah. And out of his great love, the Messiah came. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. I don't know what you were doing in your sinning states before Christ. But in those moments of me turning my back on God, saying I was done with him, I wanted nothing to do with him. Like that he had broken the contract with me or that he would wronged me. I was the one that was at war with God. I was the one who had the problem, not God. In that state, because of his great love, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved. Look at future tense from the wrath of God through him. What Paul mentions in Romans 1.18, that the wrath of God is revealed. That storm of the wrath of God is still coming. God is going to settle the score one day. But through faith in Christ, when that storm comes, we'll be spared. We shall be safe from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved in his life. A few weeks ago, I told her that, that, that day when we were up in Santa Barbara doing training and the, the surf was huge. And I, all our stuff got stuck at the gas and oil platforms out off the coast on the Chevron stations. I thought, this is awesome. We got to go check out Rincon to see if it's breaking. So I drove down there with all my buddies and Rincon, it was like magazine perfect, 20 foot perfect wave coming through the point. I had no surfboard, so I ran down to the surf shop. I buy the cheapest board available, which wasn't nearly the right tool for what I was trying to accomplish. 
all of the reporters were out there, like Surfer Magazine, hundreds of guys all along the coast there. I paddle out, got in a little over my head with what I had. And I, and I realized, I'm like, man, I need to go in. And my option was either letting the rip current take me like five or 10 miles south and walk up the beach. I'm like, there's no way I'm doing that. I'm a Navy SEAL like, in my mind. So I'm like, I'm going to brace those rocks. I'm just going to go up, take the rocks on, and I'm going to get up to the shoreline, and then I'm going to get lost in the crowd so nobody can laugh at me, and hopefully my buddies aren't in the crowd. That was my biggest fear, that all my SEAL buddies were going to be right there where I was coming up. And so I paddled in, in between sets. I ran as fast as I could up about four feet into to the biggest rock that I could hide behind. And as I'm crouching down, there's probably a 15-foot wave just but I was safe. I was so surprised. I was right behind that rock, and the rock took the whole blunt for me. And as soon as like all of the whitewash cleared up, I ran the rest of the way. Everybody's cheering. They're like, that's awesome. And I'm like, yeah, I got to get out of here. Saw my buddies. I'm like, oh, yeah, I was just shredding it up, man. I just paddled in. No problem. But it strikes me that, that, that when you go to the Old Testament, the Eastern mind is very different than, than our Western mind. And when they talk about God in the Old Testament, they often use the image of God is my rock, that there's safety behind him. And in this passage, I think of little Gunner hiding behind that rock. And as long as I was behind that rock, I was safe when that wave came. And we're told that we're safe in Christ when the wrath of God and in his life we're secure. We just went through first John and the apostle John, as he's ending his life, what does he tell the church? Little children, abide in him, abide in him, abide with Christ. I think it's 1 John 2.26. He says, abide in him so that when he appears, you won't have to shrink away in shame, but you can just go into his arms. That's beautiful. He goes on to say that we are reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled past tense, shall we be saved by his life going forward? Verse 11, and not only this, but we exult, we rejoice in God. So these exults, they they seem to be going in like greater or moving in more intimacy. So it starts with we rejoice, we we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Then it's we exult in our tribulations, knowing the the work that tribulations, what they do in our life. And now we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received. See, my mind says reconciliation. When I read this a bunch of times, I always said who we've received reconciliation. It wasn't until like later in my study, all of a sudden that I recognized I was skipping over one word. And it may seem insignificant, but it says the But note, it says that we have received the reconciliation. There's one way to be reconciled to God, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one. I didn't write that. I didn't come up with the plan. Jesus is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so the reconciliation we have is the reconciliation. It's a beautiful passage of our hope that we have in Christ. And Paul In Romans chapter 5, he's going to continue with that it's a gift that we've received. 
I don't know if you've trusted in Christ or not, but I hope that you would. I would hope that you're praying to God, asking him to, to, to connect the dots, whatever it is that you need in order to believe upon him for salvation. For those of us who have believed, we enter in positionally to where we've been justified. The problem is, is that we remain in these bodies. And when we look at the next few chapters of Romans, which was going to take us through the summer, Romans chapter 6, in essence, Paul's going to be saying, stop using your bodies as instruments for sin. You've been paid for. You've been bought. You're Christ. But then what does Romans chapter 7 say? Man, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I'm doing. And it's this great struggle in his flesh. But then you get to chapter 8. And chapter 8 is all about the spirit and his working in your life. Chipping away, helping you to, to live your life as Christ wants you to live it. And this is the process of sanctification. Positionally, we're sanctified. We're saved by what Christ did. We've been set apart. Then there's sanctification in this, this life as we live it where, where God's making us more like him. And then one day when we die or the Lord comes back and we're with him, we will be perfectly sanctified. We'll no longer have sin. No longer will there be tears in our eye. And so my prayer for us is that we could move into a, a, a deep abiding relationship with Christ. That our joy would be that we would exult in hope of the glory of God. That when trials come, when difficulties come, when you have hardship in your life, that we would truly be able to rejoice in this because we have a great God. Whatever you're going through, it hasn't, it didn't slip through the cracks of, of God's attention. But that we would view our difficulties in this life as Lord you're greater than this. And so help me to see what you're teaching me through this. That ultimately I would have proven character. That I would come out of this like Christ. And ultimately that I would exult in God. That I would rejoice in this relationship that I have with Christ. And so Father we do thank you Lord. We praise you. Father we pray for those in our midst. Lord those who may be listening Lord that don't know you as savior father i pray that you would continue your work in their life lord to show them the gospel father that we would come to understand this great love of yours that compelled christ to die on the cross to make payment for our sin and lord for those of us who have believed Lord, there really aren't words to express our gratitude of being declared justified because we all know that none of us are, are righteous. We thank you, Lord, that your great love through Christ, Lord, has bridged this gap that we would enter into this relationship with you, that we would have fellowship, this koinonia with you, Lord. We exult in you, Lord. We pray that you would help us to live our life with a lens that helps us to see how great you are, that you're working and moving through all things. Father, we long for that day when we'll be totally and completely in your presence. We love you, Lord, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.